Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This word in your ear is brought to you thanks to NordVPN. VPN, of course, stands for Virtual Private Network, which is a way to keep your data safe on the internet whenever you're logging in either at home or abroad. VPN protects your identity and encrypts your data so that nobody can steal that identity. And at the same time, it enables you to access the internet via servers in more than 50 different countries. That means you can often sidestep region restrictions and stream movies and TV programs from all around the world. Of course, the great truth about streaming, which is the film you want to see, is always streaming in another country. In my recent travels on NordVPN just now, I've been watching Carry On Sergeant with William Hartnell, The Colditz Story with John Mills, and a recent Australian contribution to the comedy of embarrassment called Fisk. So if you want to take advantage of a deal where you can try NordVPN by going to nordvpn.com slash your ear, or just use the code your ear to get a huge discount off your NordVPN plan and one additional month for free and a bonus gift. It's risk-free because there's a 30-day money-back guarantee. Full details in the show notes. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Mark, good news. I've got a Stackwaddy game. Delightful. Which occurred to me only this week. Uh, I don't know why, um, but I was looking at the listings for a uh, small venue in Home Firth in Yorkshire, which is not far from where I come from. Uh, and Home Firth, you probably know, is the home of Last of the Summer Wine. Is the home of, you know, Compo and Cleggy that we frequently reference. Anyway, uh, one of the things that this venue does is it hosts tribute acts um, on, a, on a regular basis. Lovely. And I picked up five names of tribute acts here, uh, one of which I invented, okay? Okay, go on. And your challenge, should you choose to accept it, is to identify the one that I made up, hence the Stackwaddy game. 
Uh, okay, here we go with five um, five tribute acts. Clearwater Credence Revival. Clearwater Credence Revival. <laughs> the Dutiful South. The Dutiful South. Okay. The Clone Roses. The Clone Roses. A band called Malice. That's a band <laughs> called Malice. And the Antarctic Monkeys. The Antarctic Monkeys. Your job, Mark Allen, is to tell me which of those five is a product of my imagination uh, and the other four are actual tribute acts plying their trade in in Yorkshire. Well, that's I love the old tribute act thing. The Half Moon in Putney seems to, to run nothing but the tribute acts now, doesn't it? Think Floyd, Fleetwood right. back. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm fairly sure I'm fairly sure the Clone Roses exist I'm sure I've seen them uh, advertised before and a band but, called Malice I think too I may be wrong don't stop me um, okay. uh, Clearwater Credence Revival is so is weak I think um, and I don't think you would have invented that uh, the Antarctic Monkeys ditto it's just uninspired so I think the one you've made up because it's it's very entertaining is is uh, and uh, references the whole concept of the name itself is the dutiful south. Oh. Com- Am I wrong? Damn you! You're right. Oh no, right. <laughs> okay, you're absolutely Good. correct. Oh, the Clone Roses I see are currently on their 25th anniversary tour, which um, must mean that they've been going nearly as ro- nearly as long as the uh, the act they're intended to pay tribute to. So okay, well, I just uh, I do my best to provide a well, bit of amusement. Well, you tried. Yeah, I've on tried. this rare occasion, you failed. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm kind of glowing with a pathetic yeah. sense of absolutely. pride. Yes, quite, quite. So this week has been what's well, been Russell Brand week, hasn't it? And, uh, well, I, like, God, it has. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's. <laughs> That's a story, if I could speak. I don't know anything. I don't really know anything about Russell Brand. Uh, I've, um, I think I can claim a blameless re- uh, record in never finding him funny. Because um, I, I never entirely understand how the word comedian, comedian came to be. Well, uh, I don't remember. I can remember when we were at Word, we were, I mean, in no way really obliged to write about him because he wasn't really our kind of demographic. You know, the whole point of Russell Brand was kind of the youth folk, wasn't it? Uh, hence, so many newspapers and uh, and radio stations were desperate to employ him. But I can remember that his PR ringing up and saying, "You must cover this guy. He's going to be huge." And how right they were. And we went, to, I think, to the Brits. Wasn't he presenting the Brits one year? I think he. Was. I think he was. And I can remember coming away from that and thinking, "I don't understand what he is because he was billed as a comedian, but he wasn't really a comedian. He was just a sort of." I don't know, just a voice, wasn't he? Just a, a, a mouth on legs, you know. He was a kind of uh, he was a kind of uh, philosopher, wasn't he? He was a kind of uh, he was a, he was a, he talked about politics. He talked about um, major solutions to uh, world problems. He talked about the world being a gigantic conspiracy and all the kind of things that uh, that the student audience would probably relate to. But I don't remember being no, I never remember being remotely funny. Actually, feeling slightly chilling, actually. Yes, chilling is definitely the case. Creepy. What, what's, I'll tell you what's interested me about this story this week. It just from a kind of 
show business point of view, if you want to put it that way, is just how swiftly absolutely everybody has just dropped him. You know, this time last week, oh no, when did the story break? It was yeah, like, it was. Okay. okay. So just over a week ago, all these people, publisher is PR, is is agents, is TV deals, everybody is sponsors. We're all perfectly happily. Yeah, and even the ad, even the advertisers on the one platform that still promotes him have pulled out this morning. No, I think no, but, the day uh, we're recording. But let me just you know, just ten days ago, all these people were all getting on with their with their business with him, you know, putting in their invoices and getting their money and and so forth, all perfectly happily. And then this story breaks, and absolutely has one. They all, they all drop it. Yeah. And that, that suggests to me a number of things. They must have had their own suspicions, but were quite prepared to just swallow those suspicions as long as they could put the invoice in. And they, well, they how could you the not have had your suspicions if, if he used to talk about this kind of thing, kind of boast about it, didn't he? I mean, not not the kind of uh, murkier end of it, but just about his promiscuity all the time. Do you remember that time when he was at the absolute peak of his game and, and, and every time he appeared and he, there were paparazzi camped outside his palatial uh, North, North London house and he was always come out with one, possibly more than one, very, very attractive, you know, very young-looking girl and uh, just parading these these uh, these women, you know, in a thoroughly repulsive way. And, and uh, he made no no secret of the fact that that was going on. So how could they not suspect? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, because obviously these people are a lot closer dealings with him than than reading about him in the newspaper, <laughs> you know. And you know they're dealing dealing with them all the time, but they the the swiftness with which they dropped him suggested that oh yeah we always knew, <laughs> but you know as long as it wasn't public we were all right with that, and and also then. The reason they've all dropped him is not moral disapproval. I mean, the old issue, their pious statements about this. But what really bothers them is that they're going to suffer brand contamination oh, yeah, through their association with him. Because th- And that, leaving aside Russell Brand, is just such an interesting reflection on how things work nowadays. You know what I mean? It's that nobody... You always, you'll always have controversy in show business. You've always had it. You always will. But what you know now, what is the case now that never was the case 20, 30 years ago, is that if it looks as if it's going to go wrong, they will all run away. Absolutely every last one of them will run away. Nobody will hang about and say, well, I always found him a really nice bloke. No, I totally agree with that. But part of that is that I think that if the longer you delay your running away, the more it implies that you're prepared to, to um, not, not, not accept, but you're, you're, not, you're not advertising your disapproval soon enough and loudly enough. So there's an element of that, I think. I suppose so. But it's just... Um... It's it's just the way the world works, isn't it? Now, yeah. You know, that suddenly one day it just swings completely away from them. And 
I know the newspaper coverage. You know, you, 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 I've forgotten that, that he wrote for eight years, wrote a, a Guardian sports column. <laughs> so he, he guest edited the New Statesman. The New Statesman. And, and then, oh, it was extraordinary. He was invited to do so by the associate edi- editor, uh, Jemima Goldsmith, and then moved in with her for a year. Didn't he? I mean, it's just... Well, so you reminded me. It's it's quite staggering. I was reading a thing in the, in the Sunday Times this morning. Hadley Freeman wrote a, a piece about it. And then when she used to work at The Guardian, she said, I used to sit in conferences with this guy and think, well, he's a bit... He's a bit out there, but he's on our side. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. She, Which she said... She pointed out that Stylist magazine once <laughs> ran a cover which said, if only more men were like Russell Brand. No. <laughs> yes. Oh, there must be some people seeking to, seeking to get, you know, to, to destroy yes. the, all the evidence of that now. It's it's absolutely astonishing because I can't think of, you know, there have been, there have been showbiz cancellations before, but I can't think of one that's as widespread. It's as widespread and as rapid, you're right. And, and the reason the reason is widespread, is going back to the point you made earlier, is that all media, particularly in the last 20 years, and this particularly applies to television and radio, is suffering from the creeping terror that young people can can live without them. They don't, young people don't watch the television, literally do not watch They do the not television. buy newspapers. They certainly don't buy newspapers. They don't, they, they don't, they listen, don't listen to listen, mainstream they, radio. They don't, Mark, they literally Trusted do not, not listen to radio. Yeah. They literally don't do it at all. And so when the chap comes along like him and, uh, and they say, oh, well, the young, the young people like him because he's edgy, but he can talk about politics or culture or whatever. Let's get him on. Let's bring him into our tent because there's a chance that few of these young people will follow him. Ed Miliband, they, do you remember that? Ed Miliband very closely embraced him. They've, they've all done it, you know. And Radio 2, you know, that again, they, they, when Leslie Douglas was there, just a massive uh, a, a kind of uh, recruitment of alt comedians, wasn't it? You remember all that? You know, Stephen Merchant and uh, Adam and Joe. Russell Brand, anybody that might possibly get somebody in to listen to Radio 2 who is kind of under 20 or whatever. And also, and what's really interesting about all this is that there is no indication, as far as I can see, that any of it worked in terms of, in terms of winning over young people, in terms of having, having 19-year-olds listening to Radio 2 or even Six Music. You know, there is no indication that it works whatsoever. But it's just one of those things that media does because it makes itself makes itself feel more relevant, you know, because it, it can't bear the idea that it might be drifting into irrelevance, you know. Um, and he's, he's d- redirected the whole debate, not, not about what he might or might not have done, but, but uh, towards the whole idea that it's a giant conspiracy. Well, I'm down re- free speech. I'm <laughs> really pissed off about this, uh, frankly, you know, because I spent years working in mainstream media and spent years going to meetings and board meetings and all kinds of things, and I'm really hacked off that not once that I get invited to a conspiracy meeting. <laughs> I'm bloody furious. 
and you know, and and uh, Charlie Higson was, you know, was commiserating with me on Twitter about this. You know, he was the same. Well, we decided to check our spam boxes. And there are all the invitations, you know. Can you please make a meeting to for a conspiracy on the third <laughs> of July, two thousand and eight? No, it's just there. It's there in your spam box if you, if you're looking for it. Because even um, even um, I see Rupert Murdoch who retired this week at the age of ninety two. Is it ninety three? Ninety three. He was he was completely. He was complaining about the elites. I mean, come on, for God's sake. You Rupert Murdoch. Who's more elite than you? <laughs> anyway, so, uh, yeah, I missed all those meetings. The Word Podcast. Prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week. Dave, it's the 30th anniversary of Mojo, which yeah. we're both involved with the, the launch of. Anniversary issue out just now. And... Uh, I got the old uh, first issue out and had a look at it, which I noticed there are copies of selling for £44.99 on eBay. Mm-hmm. And I was really, I was, I don't mean to sound in any way self-congratulatory here, but it was good stuff. It, <laughs> it really was. I thought it was more influential than Q. Q was a, you know, was a, a very good magazine as a regards, um, you know, the, the re- reviewing the the, the, the the massive stuff that was out at the time. But this was an amazing, it really helped establish that deep end rock culture. I think uh, the, the vinyl, the world of vinyl completists, it was songwriters rather than bands. You know, Q tended to be the cover stories of U2 and Terence Trent Darby and Eurythmics and George Michael. This was Tom Waits and Joni Mitchell and Frank Zappa and the band. And, and, and I was struck by the fact that I remember we were looking for a cover story Mm. That would somehow advertise the difference between this and Q. And John Baldy, who the late John Baldy, who worked at Q magazine, who edited the Telegraph, which is a specialist Dylan uh, fanzine, had a, a bootleg, didn't he, of the Pennebaker movie made about Dylan's 1966 tour called Eat the Document. And this is this is so niche because this is a film that never came out. And he had a bootleg of it. But most bootlegs of it had a deleted, there was one scene deleted, which was the scene where Dylan meets John Lennon around the time that he's playing the Albert Hall. And we, our cover story was about the deleted scene from a bootleg movie. Mm-hmm. Now that for an unavailable movie, how niche can you get? That was pretty fantastic. Right? I suppose it just, it's really interesting to reflect on the things that have changed in, in that 30 years. Because you're quite right, that was that was the kind of uh, material that in those days, so when 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 we talk about 1993, yeah, um, you know, so it's not what else is happening in 1993? It's Nirvana, isn't it, and all that? It is, isn't it? Uh, just before, yeah, it was. It was. It, it is. Right, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and you know, CDs are, are selling it was in, grunge, yeah. in, it was grunge. It, CDs are selling in enormous quantities, uh, you know, for, for very high prices. And, uh, the internet must be just starting to kind of raise its head, but nothing more than that. And so if you wanted to base something on a deleted scene from a, uh, an obscure Bob Dylan film that, need, that hadn't come out. You needed to know somebody like John Baldy. Yeah, and there, were, and there weren't many people like John Baldy. No, 
Wasn't know, something you could find online, exactly. That's my point. He had you a know, VHS it, tape and said, watch this. Whereas now, if you want to find anything, it's out there. It's out there on the internet. And, and if you wanted to know about it, you needed to know somebody like John Baldy. And there weren't many people like John Baldy. There were about half a dozen of them worldwide, probably, you know, who had that level of knowledge of an interest in Bob Dylan, even Bob Dylan. Whereas now, 30 years later, there are innumerable people who know that kind of thing. And there are innumerable sources for which you can access the kind of material that they were talking about. And that's the thing that's, that I don't think any of us envisaged when the magazine was launched. Because, you know, the idea was, and forgive me for, for lapsing into the kind of old vanished world of publishing. But the idea was, you know, that, that you, you, had, you had Q that was kind of younger, it was 20s and early 30s, and that you could do a magazine that was for old, slightly older people, you know, that start, might start at 35 or whatever. Uh, and what none of us predicted was that there would be a market for that kind of enthusiast, for kind of connoisseur, classic rock, if you like, that would be younger and older as well. You know what I mean? You get yeah. a new generation coming along who hadn't necessarily grown up with Neil Young and Bob Dylan or whoever were you. But wished they had. But kind of wished they had. Oh, absolutely. No, that was extraordinary. Which they weren't getting from Q Magazine. No, not you know, at all. And I think a lot of that was to do with the fact that we were employing people to write about it who, who were there at the time, really. That cover story was written by Richard Williams, you know, Richard Williams was whatever he was, 15, when uh, when Dylan uh, kind of first appeared. John Peel wrote a piece about Elvis Presley. I mean, again, first-hand experience of what it was like growing up. And now you got that thing where that sort of cliche of kind of, uh, you know, it was a it was a sunny afternoon in Laurel Canyon when uh, you know <laughs> when Graham Nash in his in his yeah. trademark um, frayed suede jacket. Turned to Dan Crosby and said, I've got a great idea for a song. Yeah. <laughs> and you think, well, mate, mate, you're 25. Were you there? Did you see this happen? You know, no, no, so we but... thought there was real value in in, in actually just finding people who were, who were first-hand uh, observers of what was but going it, on. But it's moved on, you know, far beyond that. So it's kind of become, I suppose it's the nearest analogy is, you know, the trad jazz movement of the, the late 50s yeah. and early 60s, you know. You know, we talked in the past about Ken Collier, haven't we? The, yeah. Uh, you know, the great pioneer of British trad jazz and, and skiffle uh, going off to, to New Orleans to, to try and, you know, meet some of the the last of the original creators of, uh, of Dixieland music, you know, finding that were mainly dying. Yeah, and, and there was no interest in that music. You know, it had kind of gone away, and then it was revived by the enthusiasm of a bunch of younger people who kind of wished that they had been there. So George Melly and his generation kind of did the same thing, didn't they? Yeah. As has been subsequently done with, you know, as you say, Laurel Canyon Rock and Bob Dylan and all this kind <laughs> it of. It really is, and I don't think anybody 
would have predicted that. I certainly wouldn't have predicted no. that, that it was there. And nor would I have predicted the kind of publishing boom, that kind of niche rock and roll yeah, yeah, yeah. publishing boom, because I was looking at that first issue and there's lovely ideas in there, one called Archaeology, which is just old yeah. press cuttings. I think it was about you too. Um, the cover story itself was about 10 days in the life of the Beatles and Bob Dylan in whatever it would be, May 66, I think. And now that's become a kind of publishing thing. You know, you can get whole books on just the Beatles' magical mystery tour. In fact, I think there's a book on just the Beatles going to Newquay during the shooting of the magical mystery tour. I mean, it's so specific. But am um, I not correct in recalling, Mark, and hear me out here, that the reason we stopped doing archaeology after the first few issues was that IPC who were the owners of the and the enemy and Melanie Baker. So charging us? No, they wanted to stop us altogether because it was reprinting. Oh, because we were publishing it was all enemy and Melanie Baker, wasn't it? That's right. Well, it, it would be. And and um the irony of this is they were making noises at the time about making all this stuff available anyway. And and year, and a few years later, I know I spoke to somebody who did this. Loads of old enemy and Melanie makers were scanned. Scanned, that's right, and put up to as make, an archive. Yeah. No, they, they were going to be available as a commercially available so that you would you would be able to just online you would be able to take any old issue of the enemy from, you know, September 1967 and pretty much read it on screen. And they did all the work to make that possible but couldn't find a way to clear the rights at all and so didn't do it, which is a crying bloody shame. Yeah, it really is. that That would be a fantastic resource to have. But I think that's the reason that archaeology was was quietly dropped after after a few issues, um, but yes, so thirty years ago, which is extraordinary. And so, so just uh, reading to, uh, Paul's introduction, it's so sweet. He says um, his little uh, intro at the front. Paul Denoyer, the editor, and he says, um, "Where are we?" Um, he says, yes, welcome to this first edition. He said, uh, he said it's, it's our confirmed intention to pitch a wang-dang doodle oh, yes. all night long, if necessary. <laughs> yes, he did. That's our plan. So wipe your feet, loosen your collar. You found a new place to dwell. <laughs> it was really good because it did seem like a place. Funny, Q just seemed like a big brassy kind of entertainment. It was like uh, yeah, watching a big movie or something. But but Mojo really was a little little kind of club that you went to, full of like-minded souls, you know, mm. who really understood all those arcane references. The most Mojo thing about it is the pool quote from the Bob Dylan uh, Beatles piece written by Richard Williams. And he says, if the Beatles were a Peter Blake version of a Buckingham Palace garden party, Bob Dylan was a black and white Danny Lyon photo of a Mississippi civil rights march. <laughs> if you could get all those kind of reference points, you were in. It was just yeah. a, a totally new world, I think. Yeah. And I do remember, I remember the third issue was a major break. The fourth issue was the one that sold with, with Frank Zappa on the cover. I think we all then knew that that was going to, Frank Zappa had just died with this huge memorial, you know. But I think the third issue, I think it was the one that had the, the band's second album in it. And that totally... Uh, epitomised everything about about Mojo for me. I remember Andy Cowles not finding the right kind of typefaces to produce this kind of woody and organic 
layout that he wanted. So going out and buying lino, doing lino cuts and hand <laughs> printing it on the pages. Right? You describe the book as it's handcrafted. And it really was handcrafted. Oh, Absolutely yeah. incredible. incredible. But I think that's the interesting thing too. The, the band, you know, all their values, this sort of democracy, this kind of sense of roots music, the sense of kind of Americana. I think that all began to, to really take off around me. I think Mojo played a part in that. It was a fantastic magazine. But it's also, like you say, the Frank Zappa issue. You know, nothing sells like death. No, no. Absolutely. And we realised from that point, you know, that that, that, that actually even people who are only... Because the point is, when somebody, when a, when a musician dies, then everybody all likes your, them. Everybody likes them. Because all you remember is your warmest thoughts. You remember the time in your life when they're connected with you. And, uh, and everything else is forgiven, actually. No, but also, but also, if you haven't liked them, you sort of think that you ought to. Yes, you should. So people catch up. suddenly get interested in things that they weren't interested in before. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Yeah. So talking to the strange psychology of uh, people's attachment to popular music, Joel Diath, who runs Brighter Day Vinyl, who we've had on this um, on this channel in the past, uh, he posted a thing the other day. Uh, that he he bought a whole collection of records. This is what he does a lot of the times, chase around the country, you know, looking at, you know, collections of records, maybe from people who may have died or may have decided to downsize or whatever, and deciding whether to buy them, whether they're 
the kind of thing he thinks he can he can shift. And um, this week you've got a whole collection of records which were still sealed and in their bags. It's amazing, isn't it? So, <laughs> Absolutely. Because I was thinking there's either, there's two reasons for that. Either that somebody, well, three, I suppose, that might never have played them, which is unlikely, but they could have been the kind of people who buy two copies, one to keep and then sell pristine and one to play. Or they could be, and this is a whole new emerging market, isn't it? People who buy records but actually don't play them, quite often because they don't have any equipment to play them on. There was a recent survey in the United States uh, by a, 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 a magazine, I think it says, and they said that they came to the conclusion that 50% of the people who bought vinyl had no record player <laughs> to play that vinyl on. <laughs> and I was telling you this week, so, so that's like it's, it's like buying antiques, isn't it? You just what do you do? You just you, you just scatter them around your living room. Is that what you do? Did well, you I sit d- and study the sleeve while streaming the track? I mean, I, I do not. Know. I do not know. But this I do know, Mark. Uh, as uh, somebody I know, her daughter just started university a couple of weeks ago, and uh, um, was uh, telling her mother that she'd met some bloke. Who were in the bar on the first night or whatever, <laughs> and uh, he'd invited her back to see his discogs. Irresistible! <laughs> <laughs> oh, you silver-tongued devil! Why is this? Meaning gonna... what? Meaning the vinyls that he bought through discogs? Presumably, that's an old copy of Astral Weeks, which he can't then play to her. That was my question. Was what what do, what do you do? You kind of look at the computer screen where you see all the stuff that he's bought from Discogs. No, he had taken he he had gone to university with all his records, but obviously didn't have anything to play them on. And I thought that was a really quite a touching thing. And I thought if I was eighteen in two thousand and twenty three, that's probably what I would do because if you're now, you know, forgive me if I go into the, if I go way off my expertise here, but, you know, if you're an averagely insecure 18-year-old bloke, you know, going to university, very nervous about all kinds of things. How are you going to fit in, you know? How are you going to find some friends? Well, kind of, wouldn't it be nice to meet a girl, you know, all that kind of thing? You're going to, you're going to think, how can I possibly make an impression in this world? Oh, I know. I've got 35 vinyls, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Which I've ac- accumulated through various record store days or whatever. It would be pathetic if I was away at Keele University or Liverpool or wherever it is, and I was having to try and tell this girl about these records. No, I'm going to take these records with me, even though I've got nothing to play them with, you know, because they are me. That's... That's really what they're all about, isn't it? You know what I mean? The ownership of the, these things, they are me. That's what I add up to, you know. I thought they were very touching. It is, it's about announcing your personality. It it's like a very large version of lapel badge, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> you don't have to listen. Or a, or a T-shirt or, or a pop T-shirt. You've got to look at them. Yeah. So, um, and and the Joel story about the, um, you know, because he... he, he he published a 
pictures of this stuff on, you know, on Twitter or whatever. And it's all in its shrink wrap. And I said, is it all from one retailer? He said, no, it's all from a few different retailers. Still got the price stickers in the top right of these things, you know. So this is, and, and these are not necessarily very new records. You know, they might be 10 years, 20 years old. Whoever's bought them, I do, I, I do not know. You may be right. You may be right in saying it was somebody who, who had one copy to, uh, you know, to play and another one to keep. But it reminded me of a story. I don't know if I've ever told you this before. So I used to work at the the big HMV shop in Oxford Street back in the seventies, and um, and there was a very it, it was it was self service that place. So records were shrink wrapped. They were in the in the racks, you know, and so they I had security. They had security men, you know, because people could pinch them. Records slightly more difficult to pinch. The things they used to pinch was cassettes because cassettes you could drop them in your pocket, whatever. But I think this was probably in the very early days of security cameras or no security cameras at all. And security was administered by a bunch of blokes in in their 50s and 60s, I would imagine. That. I'd imagine they've all shuffled off their mortal coil. Yeah. Them. So I can say this, what I'm about to say. And, and, um, and amongst security men, I'm sure many of them were fine upstanding citizens, but you know, you, you get the odd bad apple, you know, definitely. Um, I, I don't think it's not unknown, you know, it's like bent copies or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And um, and after I left, this happened in the early 80s, and I was told this by a friend of mine who was still working there. They all these guys used to share one major enthusiasm, they were obsessed with James Last. Oh, they goodness. absolutely loved James Last. There wasn't a single one of them who didn't love James Last, or Hansy, who's as he was known to his uh, to his fans. In fact, to the extent that when James Last used to come over and play the Albert Hall, which he did what was he called? Hansy was his German name. It's no. Jack. That's his real name. It's Han- his real name? Well, was his real name Hans? Yeah, uh, he was known as Hansy to his fans. And when he used to play the Albert Hall, they used to all get dressed up in in costumes. So these guys who all looked like like grizzled actor types that you might see in the background of um, feeling comedies, they all look like Arthur Mullard, if you remember. <laughs> <laughs> they, they would get dressed up in sombreros, you know, cowboy outfits and, you know, just mad over the top, fancy dress. Anyway, they're obsessed with James Last, and James Last used to put out a record most weeks. You know, non-stop dancing volume yeah. sixty-three. Through the party, yeah. And um, anyway, they got a new head of security who decided that the that the company was losing rather too much on shrinkage, as they used to call it. And uh, shrinkage is that is that theft? Shrinkage would, yeah, yeah, what you lost one way or another, and and so one of these guys was followed home one evening to his place in Edmonton or Tottenham or whatever, and and they went in there and there was a house entirely occupied by James Last Records, just oh my God. thousands. Crime. 
thousands of them in every conceivable space. Like and, a scene from Alan Partridge. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and and they weren't just individual copies. There were, you know, multiple copies of Nonstop Dancing number 63, 20 copies or whatever. And there was a part of me, when my mate Steve told me about this, I remember the two of us just sitting in a pub hanging. Yeah, I can understand that. Yeah. <laughs> because... Because if that was hat sash and the coloured coat, you would have done the same thing yourself. That's that's my <laughs> point. Brown's battered ornaments, fine. <laughs> that's my point. If you now now stealing is wrong, well, let's be clear about that. But if you could, if you could, without fear of you know the long arm of the law interceding, if you could steal multiple copies of one record, what would it be? Oh, what, would, what would you most like to have an entire rack of? Would it be Frank Zappa's Hot Rats or Tony Mitchell's Court and Spark or, you know, the band's... Imagine that. You've got a, a room just full of the band's second album. Band's second album. Wouldn't you like that, Mark? Perfect wallpaper. It'd be absolutely brilliant. <laughs> Five the guys in, the, in light drizzle. <laughs> That's right. What a picture. Yeah. So every night you could come home, Mark, and you could pull off from pull out from the rack full of band's second album. You could pull out another copy. You could shl- slit the shrink wrap every time. Take it off. Play a pristine new pristine. copy. <laughs> yes. Wouldn't, wouldn't you like to do every that? I would for weeks on end. It'd be <laughs> worth the lengthy jail sentence. <laughs> That's wonderful. This is a junction in the Word podcast. It separates that bit from this next bit. I saw your tweet the other day about uh, uh, bands whose whose T-shirts you'd wear even if you didn't own any of their records, Um, which is, of course, in fact, owning records in itself is a slightly kind of old-fashioned notion, but I totally got that. And there were various ones that I would go for, I think. Uh, The Edgar Broughton Band, these are bands I just broadly approve of. like the idea of I don't have any of their records. Edgar Broughton Band... Uh, Steppenwolf, uh, La Belle, the Marvelettes, the, the Herman's Hermits, the Stone Ponies, the Trogs. I think there's certain bands with just really good, just really good names. Hapsash and the Coloured Coat, Strawberry Alarm Clock, Chocolate Watch Band, Trees, Question Mark of the Mysterians. I would gladly wear any of those T-shirts. So any any that you might uh, be persuaded to Well, it, it's funny... On? I've just found the original thing that that uh, that triggered this uh, thing. And uh, somebody printed, uh, uh, published a picture of a, uh, a, a blackboard in a record shop, I think, and it just says "Rant of the Day." If your T-shirt advertises a band but you don't have any of their albums, you're an ass. <laughs> and and Radio X had uh, had said that's harsh but fair. And, you know, I thought it's, it's just completely ridiculous point of view, really. Because, you know, if you look at all the biggest T-shirt sellers, they, they, they've sold far more T-shirts than their records. Yeah. You know, and the classic case of this are the Ramones. You know, that... that um, even when they were going, they sold more T-shirts than they sold records. And uh, because 
people just liked the idea of associating themselves with with the Ramones. And uh, I also think it's really interesting that um, that it, it the, the successful T-shirts always seem to advertise a, a kind of indiness. <laughs> I always find this interesting. When you go through air to, airports, try this, Mark. When yeah. you go, go through airports, you will inevitably see if you're in you know, Heathrow Airport or Kennedy Airport or whatever, and I've seen this on more than one occasion, you will see kind of middle-aged, prosperous-looking, leathery-skinned individuals who've just come back from topping up their tan in Dubai or whatever and are on their way back on their way back to Florida or Virginia water or God knows what. And they are they are, you know, lolloping through the um, through the terminal, looking as if they've got far more important things to be doing. And really what they're doing is is on their way to the business class. Lounge or whatever, or they're, yeah. going, to, they're going to buy some, buy some duty free. They're going to buy a seven hundred pound bottle of uh, of single malt whiskey. Yeah, and um, and uh, you know they probably got sunglasses perched on the top of their heads. Yeah, one of them, I guarantee you, will be wearing a Nirvana t shirt. Yes, yeah, I've yeah. seen this hundreds yeah. of times. And what this is, is the wearing of this T-shirt says, do you know, I used to be a hell of a person back in the day. Yeah, and still am. It <laughs> threw me like a stick of rock. I, I may now be in corporate finance, but I'm still a... <laughs> Absolutely. I'm still a smells-like-teen-spirit guy <laughs> deep down. It's, I know. It's absolutely extraordinary. It also it advertises the idea that it's downtime. I'm now, I'm now kind of, I'm, you know, I'm, 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 I'm not at work. I'm, yeah. I'm my old self, you know. Whereas nobody is going around wearing those kind of T-shirts about, I don't know, the Bee Gees or Simply Red or, you know. No. Or Kylie Minogue. It's, it's always that kind of, hey, I'm edgy, edgy. I'm yeah. edgy. Underneath it all, I'm yeah. really edgy. And so, and so edginess, you know, for the Ramones and Nirvana, Became it was a quality that they sold. They did every bit as well out of edginess as they did out of beat on the brat or smells like teen spirit, you know. And uh, and of course, and that's the stuff that's now it's all owned by you know, by companies who whose job it is to keep on selling that stuff forevermore, you know. And so it's long past the point of having anything to do with whether you got three of their records or ten of their records or none of their records. It just doesn't matter at all. So, you know, I've got a list of the ones I, I wish I could find. I wish I could find a Gino Washington and the Ram Jam. <laughs> That's a great idea. Yes. <laughs> I'd like an Idle Race T-shirt. That's good. I, I'd like one for Cat Mother and the All Night Newsboys. I'd like one for the Impressions. I'd like one for the Hampton Grease Band. And yeah. the, one I, the one I'd like most of all is Lambert, Hendricks and Ross. I haven't got any other records at all. I just like the idea. That's fantastic. Yeah. 
The Word Podcast. Fix yourself a drink and it's like being in the pub. Now we're joined by our uh, birthday Patreon guest, uh, Steve Way. Steve, nice to see you. And you? When was the birthday? Oh, a couple of weeks ago now. Oh, right. Okay. We're, we're How always was it on celebrated? The I don't know. I can't remember. It can't, oh, right. be, that, <laughs> can't be that memorable, can it? I, I know. I, I, was, um, I spent the weekend in a showman's caravan in Sussex. Right. Very good. Very, very, very long, Ronnie Lane slim chance. There, it, it was a bit travelling show, yes. Very good, very good. Nothing wrong with that. What, how is a shaman's caravan different from any other caravan? Showman, showman, not, not a shaman. Oh, sure, he said a shaman. Sorry, I was going to say. Well, I suspect the E's are better in that. He's <laughs> deaf, you know. Oh. Very good. That's great. Oh, dear. So what's your log? Oh, when you used the musical director's thing, wasn't it? That's right, yes. Yeah. Who were your great influences that made well, you... Uh, I, I think it's very interesting. You start as a as a 16-year-old, and certainly when you were 16 in the... Uh, early 80s in tribal mode and tribal mode was this music's good that music's bad and you need people that I lead you slightly by the hand and say actually if you if you go over there there's something else that's interesting right and I would say the first person for me to do that um was reading and listening to Paul Weller and his lists of his influences and everything else, because it led you all over the place. Yeah, yeah. And, and and it leads you down really worrying and very, very expensive pathways. <laughs> Such as? Oh, becoming a Blue Note completist, for instance. Oh, well, but God, that costs. Oh, my Lord. How far did you get down that particular primrose path? Not far enough and, and, and enormously expensive enough. By God, that's, a, that's an undertaking, that is. Well, it was, but, of course, now you just press a button and it's all there. Yeah, it's all there. It's no fun. It's yeah, but you can't have the sleeves scattered around your house so casually you, to impress follow, people. Did you follow Paul Weller's advice at any point and think, Paul, I don't agree with you here, you're wrong in this case? Did you ever do that? Well, well yes. I think that, that is the answer because we all have artists that however much we listen to, however however much we're told they're brilliant, you can't, you can't live with. And you were talking about that last week, I think, David, with... I can't remember who it was, but you... you forever you, Changes by Love. Forever I'll Changes by Love. He tries to like every year. Yeah. yeah. So the two that I can't do are Radiohead, and I try and I try and I try. Yep. And uh, this is heresy for most people, Van Morrison. Can't get on with it. Can't get on with Van Morrison at all. Okay, I'm going to ask you... Well, early Van Morrison's very different from, different from late Van well, Morrison. Well, I'm going to ask you a supplementary on Van Morrison. At what point did you enter Van Morrison world? I mean, uh, which records did you did you try? Well, you start with... Um, you know, I, 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 what, what is the... the well, the classics are always Astral Weeks and Moon yeah, Dance. Start with Astral Moon Dance. That's, that's okay. And then I kind of got a bit excited but not enough excited about the well, – there's one about churches and cathedrals, isn't there? St. Um, Dominic's pre- preview. Yeah. Dominic's preview, that's the one. And and then from there it all just – <laughs> right. Well, listen, listen. Did, did, 
They, 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 I'm here for with good news. Just relax, for goodness sake. You do not, it's not a duty to like music. It's the worst thing in the world to, to try and like music. And I do my thing every year with Love Survivor Changes. Not because I'm really trying. I just think one day it might, you know, just... Because music just does happen to you at certain different points in your life with, with different reactions. But I certainly don't strain to like it. And there's nothing more, you know, uh, ruinous to musical appreciation than straining to like something, I think. And, yeah. uh, and you're not alone with Radiohead. I, I, Radiohead, I have glimmers when I, I, I like them, and then they leave me cold. The I love track. Radiohead, but they are, they are cold. They're a cold concept. There's yeah. no warmth coming off them. Danny Baker tweets all the time, I think he did last night, that he always tries once a year with, with The Grateful Dead. And he takes it really seriously. He sits down with the cans on. That's a lot of Big work, glass right? of red. <laughs> yeah. And he says he really tries. But it's making that effort that probably produces a subconscious resistance. Uh, particularly The Grateful Dead. You, you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't... No, you either, you're either the gonna you. It's either going to steal up upon you or it's not. Yeah, right? exactly. And uh, so now, uh, I, I, it's in, I obviously grew up in an earlier generation. So the, you know, the Beatles were constantly talking about stuff that they'd heard, you know, and it would very often be American R and B or or whatever, you know. And they, what I don't remember was it? Do you remember? But do you remember was it John Lennon or the Beatles all together who talked about Harry Nielsen when Harry yeah. Nielsen arrived? And just overnight, they made Harry Nilsson a huge star because they'd heard him via Derek Taylor or something like that. I think yeah. it was. Um, you know, so they were the very definite kind of evangelists for uh, whatever they'd heard. They'd just come back from America. Oh, we've been listening to this, and and therefore you'd have to go. You'd have to go and seek it out. What about you, Mark? Well, I remember. I remember the times that I up in London. I used to listen to the Charlie Gillett's London Radio London show. Yeah, and that was good. And I think that's where I first heard Ian Dury. I think I first heard Graham Parker and Costello, uh, and John Peel. I heard all sorts of things. John Fay. I can remember hearing him play John Fay, and the only ones, and the Buzzcocks, and and then various people. Nick Kent talking about television, and Charles Sharma, Alan Jones, and the Melody Maker. Right. Talk about pub rock. But then I was really lucky. I mean, later on, I was working in magazines and I was working with people like Dave and Neil Tennant and Paul DeNoyer and all that. And they just, that whole idea of coming into an office with a mixtape, that was the most educational yes, thing. You had like, was, a, was like a mini mini radio station God, in the office. Yes. I can remember Jim Irvin. Yeah. yeah, Jim Irvin. And also people really showing off, actually. Yeah, absolutely. Obscure corners of the record. They go, oh, don't you know this? And I can remember <laughs> Jim Irvin coming in on the second day, I think he was at Mojo, and he brought in a tape. It started with Baltimore by Nina Simone. Right. And I didn't. I never really heard any Nina Simone, and I found it was absolutely riveted by it. I went back and listened to everything she had. So we were very lucky. Yeah, we had only little DJs on tap, didn't we? Don't. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, but we also were very lucky because the the, the extension of, of of that is that you wrote that stuff down, and yeah, we yeah. bought the magazine and we read the lists, and we then thought, "Oh, that sounds interesting." Well, yeah. that's true. Well, that's partly that. why we did it. Actually, is that but we it, have a little. So what's playing in the office? You're absolutely it's, right. It's, all, it's, it's a fact of life. And it's gone now with the world of magazines, with few rare exceptions. The, the stuff you put the least work into is always the things most valued by the readers. And so it's very often, oh, do a list. 
Just do a list down in the corner. Just bang it out. Bang it out. Because we're busy chiseling away at this thing. We've been up all night. We think it's brilliant. Partly because it took so much time. But the readers don't know that. They don't care. And uh, particularly, you know, nowadays when when everything is available, you know, everybody's got the same record collection. So all you need to have is, is is the nudge to go and listen to this thing, you know. Because that, that I find is the real frustration about about the, the situation we're in now. That I always feel we've got unlimited supply of everything out there, and we've got a tiny window through which we can access yeah. it. You know, which is iTunes or Spotify or whatever you use. You know, and it has its its own navigational devices. Which uh, I just switched on Spotify. And I, I did it this afternoon a couple of hours ago, and I hadn't used it for a little while. And suddenly absolutely everything on my front page on Spotify is jazz. Because clearly the last time I was playing used Spotify was to play it at a jazz. And that's great. But it very quickly assumes that's who you are. You don't like anything else, you know. So, you know, good though those devices are, there's nothing that beats the kind of the human element, you know. The left field human suggestion. It's exactly. the left field. It's the suggestion. I tell you what I always take notice of, and I took a notice of this, and we did a thing. Oh, no, actually, Will Hodgkinson, who's the, uh, who's the um, rights man music for the Times, and uh, he did his list of albums of the year, whatever it was, at the end of last year. And I, no, no disrespect at all, but there's a lot of stuff that you know rock critics are going to mention. If there's a Radiohead album, it'll be there. And then at the bottom of it, it was Ornette Coleman. Was it Ornette Coleman? Yeah, Ornette Coleman and Floating Points. This collaboration between free jazz and this kind of trance musician. And I thought, that sounds interesting. Because he hasn't put that in there to win any points. You know what I mean? He just put it there because he genuinely likes it. So I went and bought it. And it's really good, you know. Now what happens in half an hour's time, I fire up my... T- I, I use Tidal, but... Yeah. And that's what I'll go and listen to. Well, there you go. There you go. That's how it works. Because that's I don't know about it until somebody tells me about it. Absolutely. Well, go and try it, and I hope you enjoy it. And and if you don't, don't blame me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, listen... <laughs> Well, it's been nice to talk to you, Steve, uh, on the occasion of your birthday. And thank you for your thank you for your love. Thank for your support. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.